Hi, everybody. This is T.C. Rollins, writer, actor, and musician. And this is Rain DeGray, writer, educator, and performer. And together we are the co-hosts of the... Dirty Talk Podcast. And we are here to wish you all a very happy new year. You've survived. Go you. Most new years are a time for rebirth and a fresh start. And I believe that is especially true for this year because a lot of people are pinning their hopes on 2021. Oh, God, please. Oh, God, please. Oh, God, please. Please, please. Yes, please. (laughs) Please let it all be over. (laughs) One can hope. You have to hope. Do you want to know my New Year's motto? Kick against the pricks? No. (laughs) Is that your New Year's motto? I mean, I think it's a good motto in general. My New Year's motto is tempting fate a little bit because my motto for this year is it can't possibly be as bad as last year. Oh, you are a bold one, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> well, uh, g- g- I hope. All I'm saying is that this year has its work cut out for it if it wants to attempt to be as bad as last year, because that is a hard clown car to stuff. Fact. Fact. And a lot of clowns. Either way, we've made it, and we are here for a little New Year's treat that we wanted to share with you. We have something special. We're generous like that. We would like to welcome you to our very first bonus episode ever. (gasps) The first, that means it's a collector's item. (laughs) It's mint. Keep it. Keep it mint and vintage. As you may or may not know, we have a weekly After Hours podcast on our Patreon, which is patreon.com backslash Dirty Talk Podcast. After we release one of our regular podcast episodes to the world at large, we do a follow-up episode on Patreon, which is full of all the additional research that we uncovered but didn't quite fit into the episode. We do a lot of research for these episodes and we always end up with more than we can possibly fit in and all the stuff that we can't put in like a clown car we put onto patreon it's some good stuff (laughs) not that many clowns but we do have a clown episode though yes and if you haven't listened to the clown episode i think it's good i think it's excellent i think it's some of your best work a few months back we released our halloween special which was titled two minutes till midnight and In that Halloween special, we dramatized the story of the Little Albert experiment. Now, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I suggest you do so, so we won't be spoiling anything for you if you listen to this episode right now. Or if you're like Rain and you like to know absolutely everything about a movie before watching it, feel free to continue on. If not, Pause right now, go listen to the Two Minutes Till Midnight episode, and then come back to this one. I love spoilers, personally. I just want to say, I love them. Give them to me. Delicious spoilers, please. If you're coming in fresh and you don't know what the Little Albert experiment was, it was an experiment conducted in 1919 by Dr. John Watson and his assistant, Rosalie Rayner. They wanted to see if they could cause an infant boy to be scared of a white lab rat by banging really hard on a metal bar every time the rat was presented to the baby. Spoiler alert, they could. 
what I wasn't able to share in the two minutes till midnight episode is what I learned about the really strange and bizarre life of Dr. John Watson and how his work still has an impact on the daily lives of each and every one of us. You may not know it, but your life has been shaped by this man in one way or another. In specific, your life has been shaped by this man's penis. <laughs> this is a fact. It's, it's true. And we'll get there and you'll realize why Rain says this, because it is true. His libido has caused irreparable changes in human existence. He has one of the most powerful penises that ever graced this planet. If you want to learn about this powerful penis, keep listening. We hope you enjoy this bonus episode. And if you like what you hear and want more, we invite you to join us weekly on Patreon. Indeed. So happy new year and here you go. To wrap up with the beginning of the Fear Podcast, Two Minutes to Midnight. And if you haven't guessed, it is kind of my homage to the old radio dramas of the 1940s and 1950s. Because I, when I was a kid, I grew up on listening to Suspense and Arch Obler's Lights Out, Everybody, and The Haunting Hour. And so I dropped little things here and there to pay a little bit of uh, homage to these radio plays I listened to before I went to sleep as a young boy. So I just wanted to throw that out there in case people didn't realize it. And my ending little monologue, I stole almost word for word from the ending monologue from the 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast. Yeah, I caught that. Yes. Just, I'm just, these are little things I think about. I was going to throw this in because I grew up listening to all this stuff. I know not everybody did, but you should go check it out because there's some great golden age of radio mystery theaters. The first (laughs) segment was about Little Albert. And the Little Albert experiment was a real experiment that happened starting in 1919, going in 1920, where this Dr. John Watson did this experiment where he wanted to see if he could cause a baby to become fearful of an object and he chose this white rat because he had been working with rats for a long time. The big question after this experiment was who was little Albert? Because it has been lost to history exactly who it is. And I will explain a little bit later why it has become lost. For those of you who are interested, the experiment was filmed at the time. It was one of the first scientific experiments to be filmed. You can find the footage of it on YouTube. Uh, You can see Dr. Watson. You can see Little Albert. They don't show when they're banging on the loud metal thing and causing the baby fear. They just kind of show the before introducing the baby to the different things and the after how the baby reacts to it. There were a number of other scientific investigators trying to determine the identity of little Albert. The first group thought that they had found him. They postulated that little Albert, who 
was only mentioned by his name and his last initial is Albert B, was actually Douglas Mariette, who was the son of Avril Mariette, who was a wet nurse at the Harriet Lane home for children, which was on the grounds of Johns Hopkins University. He had a congenital defect and he actually died not oh. very long after all this happened. There was a big controversy in the scientific world after this came out saying, oh, we experimented on this child that had problems already and his information is flawed. Mm. The child died not too long after that. However, later on, some other researchers came out and were like, no, 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 you guys are completely wrong. It was actually this other guy, and I went with the name Albert Barger for the podcast because I read this whole other article where they laid out all their information. Even though his name was William Barger when he was born on this birth certificate, his family called him Albert. And his mom worked as a wet nurse at this same children's home as well. For some reason, the original researchers couldn't find information about the mother being there, but if, you, if I've linked to the article on the webpage for this, and they lay out this whole case where his birthday corresponds mm-hmm. with the dates. His name was Albert B, and there's just so much more supporting evidence mm-hmm. for him being little Albert, not this other Douglas kid who had a defect and died mm-hmm. just a little while later. And that's why in my version of the dramatization, it's Barger. And I intentionally say, oh, it's a healthy young boy because they say that in their research. And so some doctors were coming back saying, oh, it wasn't healthy. But no, according to this evidence, perfectly normal, healthy young boy. The other thing they did mention in their research, which I left in, was they were planning on deprogramming him. And one of the ways they were talking about was by messing with his his nipples and and then genitals and stuff like that. nipples, and junk. That is in the actual report that they wrote up that I have linked to on the podcast webpage as well, where they've put that in there. We're going to condition this baby to be fearful of rats, and then to undo the conditioning, we're going to play with his dick. Yep. (sighs) And they also did put in the report that whole thing about the Freudian because they they weren't able to unprogrammed the boy and that was the biggest question that people had was who was little albert and was he he, since he wasn't deprogrammed by the doctor how did it affect his life did he carry this phobia going forward right you would think yeah a a baked in deep irrational Mm -hmm. fear of furry things so they actually joked in their official (laughs) report from 1920 but like, oh, yeah, some Freudian's going to think that he like, played with his mom's pubic hair, saw his mom's pubic hair, and that's why he's afraid of skin, seal skin coats. I just, when I read this in that's, their official document, I could gold. not believe this. So, yeah. I, of course, I have to leave these things in right, when I find right. them. They were able to track down some relatives of this Albert Barger. William, he was born William, Albert Barger, because he had since died, but he lived a long, healthy life. They wanted to find out if he had any adverse effects, and they said, no, we can't think of any phobias that he had. He did have a strong aversion to dogs, was the only thing they said. Hmm. So whether that training affected him and his relationship with dogs, who to say? Or he had a bad experience with a dog later down the road. Yeah. But he never mentioned being part of the experiment and him being at such a young age probably right. wouldn't 
remember it because he was only nine months old right. when they were doing all this stuff. What I did find incredibly interesting was all the information I found out about Dr. John Watson, the guy that did the experiment on little Albert. And if you will bear with me, I would love to share the story of Dr. John Watson with you. Well, based on the information I have to date, he seems like quite a character. What do you have for me? He was born in 1878 to Pickens Watson and Emma K. Rowe in South Carolina. Now, Emma was an extremely fundamentalist Baptist who forbid drinking, smoking, dancing. She attended the Reed River Church where they had extremely long emotional meetings, which sometimes lasted for two or three days. What? The members would get up and denounce themselves as wretched sinners. And the church emphasized morality and cleanliness. So she made sure that her children were extremely clean and was always preaching to them about the evils of the devil and God and sins and everything like that. John Watson had a fear of the dark because one of his nursemaids told him that the devil was in the dark. And if he went walking at night by himself, the devil would come up and try and get him. So he himself had this terrible fear and even later in life would have to sleep with the lights on because he was afraid of the dark because of his upbringing. Understandable why he would want to explore conditioning and fear in children then. Okay. The Reed River Church also had this practice besides their strict discipline of forbidding everything and having these incredibly long meetings. They also had mutual spying. So everybody in the congregation had to spy and report on everyone else in the congregation if they knew or saw them sinning in some way. So this was his mom, this devout church-going woman that believed in all this Baptist stuff. His dad, on the other hand, was this hard-drinking womanizer who loved whiskey and would disappear into the woods for days at a time to go live with his Cherokee wives. What? How did he end up? Hold on, I'm very confused. She doesn't. He doesn't seem like the type of man she would go for. You never know. I guess she needed a little strange on the he, side. He had some money. They had some property and some land. They say they lost a lot of their money in the Civil War, which, if you read oh, between the lines, they're from South Carolina, and they lost a little money. bit of their money in the Civil I'm War. I'm tracking. I'm tracking. But he had still had this large amount of land, and they had this huge farm. So he has a socially acceptable wife and then a band of Cherokee wives he keeps out in the woods? Yeah, that he goes and lives with for long periods of time while he's on a bender drinking lots of whiskey. <sighs> okay. That's uh, that's an unusual family dynamic. When he was an adolescent, John Watson started taking on a lot of the characteristics of his father. He started swearing a lot and drinking a lot and chasing women. And he was, from what I've heard, extremely attractive. And women pursued him a lot. When he got older, he wanted to go to Furman University, which was the closest college to his house, but it was a Baptist college. So he had to go to the president of the college and claim that he had reformed and he had stopped all his sinning ways. And that was the only way they would allow him to be admitted to the college, even though 
he was still drinking and womanizing all on the side. After Furman College, he went to the University of Chicago. In the University of Chicago, got really interested in psychology because he took one of his first psychology classes and started doing experiments on animals to test their behavior and was really interested in how animals learned. He was the very first person to build a rat maze. Oh, no way. Yes. In November of 1901, he built the very first laboratory rat maze to test rat learning for them to find food somewhere in a maze. And he set up all these little contraptions, had to push a lever to find the food, run the maze, and he would time them to see how fast they would learn it. One of the other things he was interested in was how they were learning these things. And later on, as he was testing rats, he started removing their eyes with scalpels or removing uh, their uh, ears uh, or their smell, their their their, uh, their, uh, their, their smell, cutting their whiskers because he wanted to see if he could handicap them in some way. If like once they learned the maze and then put them back in the maze after he like gouged out their eyes, if they'd still be able to complete it, and they were, he found that no matter what he did to them, they would still be able to solve the maze in some way. So there had to be some other mechanism for learning going on with that. Oh, those poor rats. He completed his PhD at the University of Chicago and then took on a teaching position there as well as a research position. When he started teaching, he met Mary Ikes, who was his student. Of course. She was also the younger sister of Harold Ikes, who was a well-known politician at the time and wound up becoming... FDR's Secretary of the Interior. So he's a really connected politician at the time. Uh Mary Ikes becomes a student at the University of Chicago, and she quickly falls for this very handsome professor. She doesn't do very well in his classes at all. And the story she tells is that on the final examination day, she didn't know the answer to any of the questions So she started writing a love poem to John Watson in her examination book. (laughs) That's one way to get an A. When she reached the line, his black hair, brown eyes, she heard him say, time's up. And he came around and started collecting all the examination books. He came to her and she was reticent. And he's like, well, give me the book. She handed it out and gave it to him reluctantly. He really liked the poem that she wrote about him. So John and her began to date, even though she was his student, and it was completely against the rules of the university. I mean, when someone is so clearly making their needs and desires met, it takes a strong man not to crumble over eager, young, nubile females throwing themselves at him. Mm-hmm. Her older brother, Harold, the politician, who would become part of FDR's staff, got wind of this whole affair and sent word for Mary to come back home at once. But he found out that they had already gotten married under fictitious names. Is a marriage valid if it's under a fictitious name? I think so, because they still okay. went uh, maybe right. back then. So they had already gotten married uh-huh. Maybe they gave fictitious names. I don't know how that whole thing worn out, but secret marriage. So instead, he threw them a reception for the newlyweds. 
he hated the guy, though, called him selfish and a conceited cad. Also, it has since come out that during this whole time of their secret marriage before it became public, John Watson was messing around with a Vita Sutton, who was an old flame who had recently come back into town. So from the outset, he was cheating on her. Right. Well, he learned from his daddy. In 1905, their daughter, Mary Watson, was born, who was nicknamed Polly. And her birth was kind of questionable and how it lined up with the date of their wedding. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They later had a son named John Watson Jr. He continued his experience on the rats, handicapping them, but he wanted to start experimenting with human learning in the same way. But at this point in time, people are like, you can't experiment on humans like you are with animals. We're not going to give you a pack of babies for you to blind and run them through a maze. He would have loved that, though. He got a new job offer at Johns Hopkins, where he transferred to in 1908 and quickly rose to the top because the chair of the Department of Philosophy, Psychology, and Education was caught at an interracial brothel and it was busted. Ooh, that dark meat. <laughs> oh, you can imagine that this was 1908. I mean, the mere fact that the interracial brothel existed in the first place meant that people wanted to do it. But it was very taboo. That was a bad thing. Bad, bad. You got caught. The the other chair got caught in a raid at the interracial brothel. Promptly lost his job. So John Watson came to the very top of the staff there so he could do all the experimenting he wanted. In 1913, John Watson published the article Psychology as the Behaviorist Views It which is also called the Behaviorist Manifesto, he was the first person to coin the term behaviorism. He was the founder of behaviorism. I, there's no way all of this could happen to one person. It this, gets better. H- how? It what? Gets, it gets better. I'm telling you. Like, I was excited to tell you the story. It gets better. Go on. Up to this point, psychology saw that people were individuals and they wanted to know what was going on in people's minds. He said, I don't care. I just want to see what their behaviors are. I want to see how they learn because it doesn't matter how you're thinking in your head as long as you can change the outcome and your behaviors are different in the world. It doesn't matter how you arrive there. He saw that this could be uh, social engineering. It could guide society to ways in which the individual may be molded to fit the environment. Uh, That's a concept that could easily go down the wrong path. The way he saw it is that society can employ psychology to retain those of its members who did not conform to civilized standards, i.e. the criminal, the lazy, the drifters, and even the mentally ill, could be turned into useful members of society. It would not be left up to them to choose... And those few criminals whose nervous systems were so askew that they could not be conditioned into decent members of society ought to be euthanized. Ah, so he's a comic book supervillain. In a way, basically saying we could train everybody to be a certain way. And if they don't conform because they're so far gone, we're just going to kill them. Right? Right, right. Of course, during this time, he's still having numerous affairs. Then in 1919, enter 
Rosalie Rayner. I was wondering when she was going to enter the picture. I recalled playing her, and she seemed um, quite uh, on very familiar terms with her employer. She was on very familiar terms. Again, she was his student who came to Johns Hopkins in 1919. She came from a very rich and distinguished family, and her uncle was a senator. He really likes these young students with political connections, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. And she had just graduated from Vassar. So that tells you. So she is intelligent. She is young. She is beautiful. She comes from money. She is only 19. He is 42. Oh. And if you put it in perspective, his daughter Mary is 14 at the time, only oh. five years younger oh. than Rosalie. Oh. They, of course, fall in love and start a passionate affair. She was his assistant in the Little Albert experiment. And she was credited, when you look at their report, it was credited to both of them as their scientific experiment. Their affair became more public. And they were starting to see be seen around town together going to lunch. And they would start going off on long weekends to New York together. This was happening in Baltimore, and she was like upper Baltimore crust. So, of course, people started talking. His wife, Mary, of course, was catching wind of this, and she thought it would go away like all his previous affairs. So he invited Rosalie and her family to dinner at their place and started becoming friends with Rosalie and her family but at the same time started rifling through John's clothing and finding love notes that Rosalie had been writing to John. So she was fully aware that something was going on and decided to bring them as close as possible because you keep your enemies close. Mm -hmm. It's a common technique that uh, people will utilize when they suspect that they are being cheated on is to become friends with the person they think is the affair partner. Yes. At this period in time, John confided in a friend that he planned to send his family to Switzerland and that after two years, he could get a divorce on the grounds of desertion and thereby protect his job at the university if he could get divorced and then marry Rosalie later on. So he's scheming here. One night they go to Rosalie and her parents' house. His wife feigns a headache, slips away, makes it up to Rosalie's room, locks the door, starts rifling through her drawers, finds a bunch of love letters from John to Rosalie there, pockets them, and then goes back downstairs, pretending like nothing ever happened, everything's cool. <laughs> However, she takes these love letters that she found, she brings them to her brother, the bigwig politician, who then makes copies of the letters. She wants to confront John with them to convince him to come back to her. After it all comes out, it is suggested that Rosalie goes and takes a tour of Europe until it all blows over. Rosalie refuses, says she's in love with John. I'm not doing this. Her father threatens to disown her. She says, I don't care. She still refused. And then John and Mary separate in 1920. In late September, one of the love letters somehow winds up in the entree of the president of Johns Hopkins. And this starts leading to John's downfall. 
they agree to terms of the divorce. He wants to keep Rosalie's name out of this entirely and agrees to all of Mary's terms for the divorce in order to keep her privacy. But the letters are leaked to one of the Baltimore newspapers and it becomes a big controversy in Baltimore. Gee, I wonder who leaked those letters. And then Mary goes on to give a long interview with the New York Herald about the whole situation. <laughs> so uh, imagine your affair and divorce being so noteworthy that you are interviewed by the New York Herald. I mean, lots of people have affairs and get divorced. I can't I can't even imagine what it's like to have your your affair and, and divorce to be so noteworthy that you're interviewed by a newspaper over it. That's some that's some heavy scandal there. That is some big scandal for the time. Right, right. The divorce became final on December 24th, 1920, and 10 days later, John married Rosalie. Now they are officially together. He's fired from Johns Hopkins, of course, because he was having this very public affair with his students. Student. You're not supposed to do that. No, no, no. He doesn't know what to do, but a friend of his gets him a job in advertising. He is the first person to bring behaviorism and psychology to advertising. No one in the civilized world has not been affected by the work of John Watson. And I will tell you why every person listening to this now, you and I, have been influenced by his work. One of the first things he noticed is that items placed near a cash register sold briskly and that consumers bought on impulse. He was the first one to recognize impulse buying and thereby how to set up the checkout lines at stores to ensure people will buy things as they're leaving. Wow. I've impulse bought stuff. I mean, it, that works. It does. And this is what he saw through his behaviorist lens. He also originated the concept of brand loyalty. He was doing testing for cigarette smokers. He wanted to see if he could tell their brand from a different brand. It was basically like the first blind taste test. He found that they couldn't distinguish it. And what they were really buying was the image Which, that the, the cigarettes brand. were okay. producing. So he's like, all our products now have to create this image that the consumer can identify with. And therefore, they will just buy by the brand because they want to identify with this image. So he coined brand loyalty. He was also the one to start working on timed obsolescence. Yeah, thanks a lot for that one, man. He wanted to make sure that even though things were still useful, they would go out of style so people would come and buy new things. He was the first one to start doing market research to find out what people want rather than trying to sell them on things that they have a resistance to. So he was the first person to start gathering people into a room and trying out a product. I mean, what do you think of this product? How can we change it? The packaging and everything like that. Nobody had done that up to this point. And now every advertiser does it. Standard. Yes. He was also the first one to say, let's go get the competitor's products and test them ourselves and see what can be improved upon this and see how we can negatively campaign against the competitor and say, and how we can compare our products to them. He was also credited with popularizing the term coffee break during an <laughs> ad campaign for Maxwell House Coffee. What didn't this guy do? Uh, 
decent amount, but not very much because there's more. Go on. One of my favorite ads that he came up with was for the Scott Paper Company who was making toilet paper products. He came up with this ad with the headline for the advertisement was shown above two surgeons looking at a patient's rear end saying, and the trouble began with harsh toilet tissue. The ad went on to explain that they had to perform an operation on this man's rectum because he was having rectal trouble from using harsh toilet paper on his ass because he realized that society has a hypochondriac culture where if you start telling them there's something wrong or you don't want to do this or if there's this thing wrong with you, it's because of this, try this toothpaste. Oh, like how they started marketing a phobia of BO or bad breath where it wasn't before. We have a product. You have a problem. This is the this exactly. is the product to fix that problem that you didn't even know you had until we made you worried about it. Don't want an operation on your butt? Don't no. use bad toilet paper. Well, I don't want an operation Scott. on my... I'm sure. I, I'll, what's the toilet paper? I'll buy it. That's very effective. That sneaky bastard. So he was the one that introduced all these ideas into advertising oh. that are still in use today and are still thrown at us on a regular basis by all the advertising companies. So if he'd been able to keep his dick in his pants, advertising and consumer culture as we know it would likely be vastly different. Possibly. I mean, it's he still went into possible. advertising because he got fired. If he, yeah. he he wouldn't have brought these concepts to the table, probably wouldn't have brought all of them. But he was he was turning that dangerous mind of his. It might have gotten there eventually. Eventually, but, but yes, if yeah. he hadn't been fucking his nineteen year old student, then advertising <laughs> wouldn't have gone to where it is. Which, which, so his dick has affected the entire world. Yep. Oh my God. Wow. That's, I've heard of the experiment. I, I, you know, you learn it in psychology class, mm-hmm. but I, I had no idea the backstory. You could say he had one of the most powerful penises in the entire world. <laughs> still fucking us over it's to this day. still fucking us to this day. Forget Casanova. This dude laid some pipe in everybody's minds. Exactly. But there's more. No. It, how? <laughs> I refuse to believe it. How could there possibly? Is it aliens? It's aliens, it's right? Not, I'm not saying it's aliens. Oh, okay. But it's aliens. It's aliens. So he became incredibly wealthy yeah. in advertising because he yeah. rose to the top of this advertising sure. company and he was making a shit ton of money. And he wasn't taking out rat size with scalpels anymore. So that's a win, right? Well, for the rats, for yes. The rats. But he was not satisfied. He doesn't seem like a man to be easily satisfied. No. Although he was appreciating the money and the success that was coming from the advertising, he still missed academics. So without a laboratory, he turned to conditioning his own children with his behaviorist ideas. Oh, no. I can see this ending poorly. Go on. He and Rosalie had two boys, Billy who was born in 1921, and Jimmy, who was born in 1923. At three months of age, Watson tried to condition his son's bowel movements. His wife, Rosalie, wrote in February, I thought I had succeeded in conditioning the bowels to move, but it was a false observation. Billy was constipated and had to have laxatives, 
but still made to try every morning at the same time. By the time his son Billy was born, Watson had started to believe that scientific evidence showed that children should get very little hugging and kissing. Freud had shown that many infants were hopelessly fixated on either the mother or the father, and this is the reason, he thought, was that mothers and fathers were giving the children too much attention. I mean, I've certainly seen many cases where a child becomes very fixated on one parent or the other. So, yeah. Well, they're usually the one that's giving them more attention and affection because right. children, just like animals and just like plants, need, need crave attention and affection. Yes. Oh, because those poor of, kids. Because of these beliefs that the children shouldn't get any love and affection from them, John and Rosalie live their own lives as if the children weren't really there. The children were expected to be very polite to their parents. They rarely ate together as a family. Rosalie thought there was some danger that their sons were not part of their lives enough. And they went on to treat their children basically as young adults and expected them to treat them as adults in return. Because as John saw it, he wanted his children to be incredibly independent. But according to her memoirs, Rosalie was a little guilty because she was not the perfect behavioristic wife. She was still too much on the side of the children and could not resist kissing and hugging them sometimes. Oh, shame on her. When John wasn't around, of course. Right. And of course, by age of three, Jimmy was having reoccurring stomach pains. I would uh, theorize that would be some stress there. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a pretty stressful existence. Poor kid. I'd be having stomach pains too. Based on all his research that he had done with his own children, in 1928, he released a book called The Psychological Care of Infant and Children, which turned out to be the best-selling book of child-rearing at the time. He became essentially the Dr. Spock of the 1930s. After he'd done all the tampering with advertisement and mind control. Yes. He then became, he shifted on to tampering with kids. Yeah, becoming the best-selling children's psychology writer of the time. He argued that children should be awakened at 6.30 a.m. for orange juice and a pee, play till 7.30, breakfast should be at 7.30 sharp, at 8, they should be placed on the toilet for 20 minutes or less till bowel movement is complete, then follow up with a verbal report. The child would then play indoors until 10 a.m. After 10, outside, a short nap after lunch, then social play with others. In the evening, a bath, quiet playtime until bedtime at 8 p.m. sharp. This was the regimented life that children should lead in his view. He also argued that institutions like the Boy Scouts and the YMCA could lead to homosexuality, which uh, we all know um, the YMCA does lead did to homosexuality. Indeed, he wasn't wrong there. <laughs> so he advised against them because he was incredibly anti-homosexuality and masturbation. Well, the Boy Scouts led to a lot of homosexuality as well. Mm, yes. Did, well, we're, did. Not, we're not getting into that right I'm now. Just, I'm just saying he was right on both counts. Okay. Oh. But he did, even though he was against homosexuality and masturbation, he thought that parents should talk openly with their children about sex which was progressive, and I agree with that. I think that's the only thing I can agree with of his. 
He also said that girls were in even more danger because they held hands, kissed, and slept in the same bed at pajama parties. They do do that. Mm Mm-hmm. The whole social fabric is woven so as to make all women slightly homosexual, according to John Watson. I can kind of see his point. In John's view, their babies should be taken from their mothers during the third or fourth week. If not, attachments were bound to develop. He claimed that the reason mothers indulged in baby loving was sexual, which I guess was kind of Freudian. Also, they should never kiss their babies on the lips. Uh, He railed against mothers who successive affection made the child forever dependent and emotionally unstable. Children should never be kissed, hugged, or allowed to sit in their laps. If there was to be kissing, it should only be on the forehead. This guy's got a lot of really strong opinions, doesn't he? He does. His other argument was that we should stop having babies until we knew how to properly raise them. So he advised against having more children for a number of years until we learned how to scientifically raise them. So he became the best-selling children's psychology writer of his time, and a whole generation of children were raised based on these supposed scientific methods. <laughs> I guess I would call no them affection, no affection, a rigid pee, schedule, a, a pee early in the morning, and kisses on the forehead only. Yep, Jeez. no attention whatsoever, and do not pick the child up or give them any affection if they cry. Oh, so many people have been affected by. This man did massive damage. Methods, yes. And a strange twist because of their focus on bowel movements and everything. In 1936, Rosalie got diarrhea and died. She died from diarrhea. Dysentery, I believe. Oh, that's it's so fitting. This is... I... Do you want to know what happened to his kids? Please. I mean, it's probably not anything good. But I'm doubting it's great, but let's hear it. He raised his kids according to his scientific method. His son, Billy, became a respected, successful psychiatrist in New York. He became a Freudian and turned against his father's behaviorism entirely. And his first suicide attempt was stopped by the younger brother, Jimmy. The second attempt in his mid-30s, however, was successful. Uh Uh, His first son that he had with Mary, who was little John because he was John Jr., became a rootless person, wandered around, couldn't ever find his calling. He sponged off his father. He was plagued throughout his life with stomach trouble and intolerable headaches. And he died early in the 50s of a bleeding ulcer. Sounds like that would be stressful to have someone like that as your father, yes. His son Jimmy also had chronic stomach problems for years, but after intensive analysis, seemed to be getting better and was living okay. His daughter Mary, who they called Polly, attempted suicide over and over and over again. She is quoted as saying, I was 26 before I knew what anger was like dad. I kept turning it on myself. I did everything not to get angry, including marrying a husband who beat me. There are various kinds of suicide. Oh. His granddaughter, Mariette, 
who became a Hollywood actress, talked about interacting with her mother, who was John's daughter. She said, we couldn't talk about feelings. We couldn't talk about affection. We couldn't talk about touching, but we could talk about sex. <laughs> so they were very open she... about sex, but no cuddly feelings or emotion. How do you have sex without touch or affection? I mean, I can understand you can have without affection, but I think like touch, that seems a little contradictory. Okay, go on. Years later, she explains, she was crossing a congested boulevard in Los Angeles. She took her mom's hand, but her mother quickly pulled it away, saying, don't, people will think we're lesbians. <gasps> she did go through therapy on her own. It sounds like some therapy was needed after that, yes. <laughs> and lived a long, healthy life. Towards the end of his life, Dr. Watson did realize that he had made some vast mistakes. You think? I, mean, I think all the suicides and stomach pain might be a bit Basically, of a Basically, all his kids attempted suicide at some point or died because of nervous disorders. I, I may have made some mistakes. Hmm. He made some mistakes. He felt terrible about how all this generation of kids had been raised by his flawed theories. He destroyed much of his work, burned all his papers. That's one of the reasons why we do not know who the original oh. Lolo Albert was, because if it had been in his papers, he destroyed them all, burnt them before he died. Then at the end of his life, started drinking even more heavily than he did before and died of liver cirrhosis in 1958. Um, uh... There you have it. The long, weird, wonderful life of John B. Watson. I, 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 you could arguably say that this man has had more of an effect on humans than almost anyone else in history. Um, because of the advertising. Possibly. Advertising through all cultures. If you, you any any ruler, any king or even any politician, even Hitler, that, that's sure. Because it's still affecting billions of it's people today. To this day, mm -hmm. to this day, and turn a, a widespread effect, name someone whose thoughts and ideas have had more of an influence on all of human society as a whole. Yeah. Because advertising is so powerful. We are a consumer culture. Like that's... Oh, yeah. I I mean, you could say that someone else could have come up with those concepts, but this one person came up with all of that. Mm -hmm. And not only that, affected an entire generation of kids, making them suicidal, ulcer-ridden, damaged individuals. This dude. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he deserves his own podcast. But I appreciate you all sticking with me through this. I just found this so intriguing that I had to share the whole... I mean, there's more information I left out. <laughs> I mean, you would say- You left well, out the aliens, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I left out some of the aliens. But, you know, I figured I'd given you enough rundown of his life. But this... he lived an intriguing, intriguing life. Yeah. I had no idea. Wow. I mean, this was definitely a longer podcast, but every step was riveting. That's insane. I... <sighs> You're welcome. His, 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 that was one powerful dick. <laughs> That's all you can fix it on. Is that yes? It all happened because, because of he his had dick. a fucking nineteen-year-old student. That tra trouser snake influenced billions of people. That's just that's some that's a uh, some powerful wedding tackle some right powerful there. Powerful medicine right there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's full of importance. Full, full, packed. 
All right. Why don't you give these people a jaunty salute? They've been sitting around listening to us for long enough. We appreciate you turning in. There you have it. Our two minutes till midnight. Dirty talk. After hours. Follow up podcast. You're welcome. I'm sure I have more information to share, but that's for another time. <laughs> well, I'll catch you all next week, my friends. Thank you for tuning in. Over and out. Jaunty salute. One jaunty salute coming your way. All right.